0: Welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week I talk with event professionals and entrepreneurs about how they plan, promote, and run their events. We help you build your events empire by growing your business using live events. Whether you're running community meetups or conferences, trade shows, and other events, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. We want you to get more attendees, produce epic events, make more money and most importantly to do it all with no stress. This podcast is sponsored by EventsFrame. Check it out over at eventsframe.com. Make the switch from Eventbrite today to our amazing ticketing and registration system with no ticket fees. Most ticketing systems charge you a minimum of 3% of the ticket price, but we just have a flat low fee with no ticket fees and no restrictions. There's literally no system out there that is cheaper than EventsFrame. It's also super easy to use, and you can embed your tickets in your website, or you can use our own website builder, which is really simple. We have amazing options to apply all kind of discounts, and all the features you'd expect from a much more expensive system like QR code check-in. Go to eventsframe.com. That's E-V-E-N-T-S-F-R-A-M-E.com for a free, no-risk, one-month trial. Hi, it's Dan here. I just want to jump in before the interview. Uh, to say a few things, it's uh, Thursday the 18th of July, I'm uh, back in Prague, I've been a bit quiet so far in the summer, I'm just back from two weeks vacation, we went down to our place in Austria, which was amazing, we were in Rauris, we were climbing in the Alps, we were doing a lot of hiking. By the way, if anybody listening to the podcast Speaks Polish, check out my wife's blog at dolinarauris.com, D-O-L-I-N-A-R-A-U-R-A-S, she's got a great blog about all the hiking, uh, and things to do in Austria. So that was really cool. I am in mean, training, I think I've mentioned before, I'm on a trip to try to climb Mount Rainier in Washington state in August. So it's next month now. So I was doing a lot of training and every second day I was trying to get like 1500 meters of vertical in up the hill, you know, I did a, did a couple of peaks. So It was really good, really like, you know, good strenuous holiday um, and, and very relaxing. So normally summer is kind of a quiet period typically I found especially as you know the with apps events we work with a lot of schools, but it's, it's been super busy, to be honest, so far. Um, with Events Frame, our amazing app, which you should all check out, we're working on, hopefully this week, we're going to finish our WordPress plugin, which is going to be super cool. You're going to be able to go into WordPress, download our plugin, and plug our events straight into your WordPress site, which is something that's really requested, and it's going to be an amazing feature. So that's been one thing. We've also been doing a lot of events in the US, like we work with schools and, and kind of US teachers are much more keen to do things in the summer, so we've been running a lot of those. And then just a bunch of other work things. I'm working on a new website right now, We're moving our site to WordPress from uh, kind of a bespoke, just pretty much static HTML pages, moving our accounting system. So a lot to do, you know, but I want to take some more time to relax in the summer. Uh, Other thing I'm working on, um, I think I mentioned this before, we've we've been doing a, a Google for Education Summit in Bangkok for, I think, Nine eight or nine years now, so long, but this year, I really want to try to grow it. I want to you know we had Steve Monnington on the podcast, and he talked about how you can grow your conference to be a confex and an exhibition. you know Confex is kind of like something like a cross between a conference and an exhibition, so more exhibitors and I want to do this. I want to make this like the premier event for international schools. So I want to get exhibitors, I want to get a lot of amazing software hardware vendors you know things like robotics uh, all, all, all the all the companies that schools will use i want to get schools from across asia because i really believe that bangkok is is a destination you know people who live in singapore korea japan hong kong they want to go there for the weekend and there's no really good edtech event in bangkok so gonna work on that anyone who's got any tips please let me know um, i'll be reporting more on that on the podcast and finally like please let me know like what kind of guests do you want to have on the podcast you know we're always looking for new guests i want to get some people in the music industry i want to get more people running exhibitions and more conference people but please let me know i'm super keen to hear from anyone any tips so please drop me an email dan at eventsframe.com e-v-e-n-t-s-f-r-a-m-e.com or message me on the comments or message me on Twitter at Dan Taylor Events. Anyway, I'll reply to you. I'd love to hear from you. So, enough of that. On to the interview, and I hope everyone is having a great summer. Hello, and welcome to the Events Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Taylor Banks over at Taylorbanks.com. I think is uh, is the website. Yeah, it is. Um, Taylor uh, is in a group which I'm a member of called the Dynamite. circle and I I put a post in there about people who've been running interesting events and he replied so here we are having a chat on the podcast so welcome Taylor.
1: Thank you very much for having me Dan I uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here.
0: Cool well before we get into the the events stuff um, what's quite interesting is how you're living in an RV like how did that come about and and how long have you been doing that?
1: Um, Well you know I'll try to give you the short version my wife and I actually originally anticipated becoming expats we had a a two-year plan to move to Costa Rica back in 2009, 2010, and fast forward to 2012 and early 2013, we hadn't really made any progress on our plans to move to Costa Rica. Uh, We were still in the same house we were in, we were still doing the same work we had been doing, and we kind of felt, I don't know, just stuck a little bit. And uh, I, I guess the indications that it was a good idea is that both of us seemed to think it was our idea. But w- you know, we basically, we had a conversation and said, how can we, how can we go to another country to enjoy the the beauty of that other country if we haven't fully experienced our own? We realized, you know, as much fun as we'd had on trips to Costa Rica, I don't think we'd been to more than one national park in the US. So we, we kind of stumbled across this idea of, of purchasing an RV, a caravan, motorhome, whatever, uh, whatever you'd refer to it as. And we, we went out, we spent a lot of time looking and evaluating. We'd never really even been in RVs before. So this was a pretty foreign concept, but after just a few months, um, well, in in kind of our style, we kind of had to trick ourselves into doing it. So we ended up, we found an RV we liked, we uh, we bought it with cash, and we spent a couple of months kind of getting ready, and to be completely honest, we kind of accidentally moved into it and, and took off. The weather was cold in Atlanta where we were based, and. We went uh, on a little trip on Thanksgiving of 2013, and uh, when it was time to turn around and and head back home, the weather was still so cold in Atlanta, we'd have to winterize the RV. So we just left and went to Florida, and five and change later, uh, here we are. We've been from everywhere from the Florida Keys to Alaska and back. Right now, we're pulled up in, uh, I'd say, sunny Arizona. Because uh, generally in the wintertime, this is one of the warmest places you can be in the, the continental U.S., but it's actually a little bit rainy and cool today. Still, it's not worth complaining about compared to the rest of the country. So we're, we're in a generally warm place this year, as we are most winters.
0: Do you stay in, like, RV parks, or do you just park by the side of the road, or how, where do you stay?
1: Um, so we've, we've put a lot of time and energy and a fair bit of money into outfitting the RV to be capable of going places that uh, are fairly remote. So we've got a lot of solar on the roof. Uh, we've got big boosters and antennas to get, you know, internet, uh, mostly cellular internet. We have multiple providers. So because of that, we tend to try to go and stay in places that are fairly remote, fairly natural. Um, for us, RV parks are kind of like the backup plan. If there's, if we can't find a, a nice section of national forest that allows camping or if we can't find BLM land... Um, that allows us to go in camp or if we're not staying in a national park, then we might grab an RV park. But RV parks for us are kind of the least common option. We don't really do as much of the urban boondocking or staying on the side of the road because we have a fairly large and uh, I hate to use the word but obtrusive RV. We're a, a 34 foot class A style. so it kind of you know, it's like a almost like a bus chassis. It's pretty big. Um, and you know, on a side street, it's fairly obnoxious, although, admittedly, right now, that's exactly what we're doing. We're doing what we call mooch docking, uh, where we are at a friend's house here in Tucson, Arizona. And he's allowed us to plug into his 30 amp power. So we're hanging out basically in front of his house. But this is a a fairly uncommon thing for us. Most of the time, you'll probably find us in a national forest, a national park, um, or BLM land, if we can find it. Um, We like to beach camp a fair bit. So if we're traveling up and down the coast, we will go find nice places to camp along the, the water. But um, yeah, we like to tend to be remote. We, uh, we enjoy, we did this, we do this for the, for the nature and the places, not as much the cities We're we're both city people, uh, originally. And we, you know, you still got to go hit a, a store or two every once in a while. But for us, that's, uh, like I said, that's kind of the, the less common approach.
0: I'm sure you meet a lot of people that like, I guess in society, you probably wouldn't normally come into contact with. And there's so many groups. There's an interesting thing of You know, Wired magazine about people who were just just too poor to have houses. And a lot of people who worked in like Amazon fulfillment centers, they lived in RV and then they'll spend the winter in like Florida, then they'd, they'd stick the RV next to the fact, next to the Amazon warehouse. And work there. Some people will like kind of like one step above homeless. It's kinda of like the cheapest way they can live, you know. And I guess I guess you must come across these people, which would be fascinating because you could, probably wouldn't do in, in kind of regular life.
1: Um not as many, to be honest. I think, you know, most of the folks that are that are doing this on a budget tend to be a little bit more permanently docked, you know. Right, the, well, really? the they don't move around. So RVing much. yeah, RVing is inexpensive if you're not moving, right? But the cost of fuel here in the US is pretty exorbitant. So if you're if you're
0: traveling, unless it's
1: got I'm sure, uh, but you know, like for us, because of the age of our r v and the size of our r v and then we tow a car behind it, you know we get about um six miles to the gallon, so you know it depending on the the cost of fuel at any point in time, you know it can be you know fifty cents seventy five cents a uh, dollar per mile as we're traveling right. um so as you can imagine that that becomes cost prohibitive for a lot of people, and so that's really kind of one of the the costs that we control, you know depending on how far we want to go and and how fast we want to get there? You know, a trip to Alaska, for instance, is a, a fairly expensive trip just in terms of fuel costs. Um, sure. But again, most of the places we go, um, I don't. We don't really see as, as many of the folks that are just above homeless. Uh, you know, you know, RV parks. You'll you'll find a lot of folks who are, are kind of, of you know living people, the guess, permanent lifestyle. There are there are a lot of retired people. Although that's there's a much there's a growing and much larger community now of younger working folks uh, doing the RV thing. In fact, there's a a couple of groups that are kind of specifically dedicated to that. Um, Most of the folks that we meet and encounter because of the places we end up camping um, tend to be fairly well aligned with us. You know, they're, they're not retired or of retirement age, though they may be of retirement age, but not retired or, or vice versa. But, you know, they're out to, to find the sites. They're out to hit the national parks. A lot of the folks that we meet, like others in the dynamite circle, are very much digital nomads. Most of these folks are working on the road, you know, whether they're, uh, you know, working for a, a remote company or working for themselves or, you know, working as consultants. Um, a lot of the, the people that we kind of interact with or, or come into contact and proximity with, with Tend to actually be, um, you know, fairly similar to ourselves, I guess, in in kind of the the manner and style with which they travel.
0: Do you get more young people doing it, do you think, because it's just like in a lot of places in the U.S., it's just not very hard to afford a home nowadays given house prices?
1: Not so much. At least the folks that we've met that I, I find that are doing this earlier. I think for a lot of people they're driven by kind of similar goals to us. That you know they they see other people they may, they might have gone and and you know their their parents or grandparents might have RV'd and so they had this notion of it being something that retirees do. And and again that might be true if you go to RV parks in major metropolitan areas. But I think a lot of the people that we've met that are younger they're doing it because they see that you know, this is kind of the ideal time, you know, when better to go see the world than, than when you have the physical health and the desire and the interest and the spirit really to get out and, and kind of enjoy it and enjoy the culture as you go. So yeah, I think uh, more of it is driven by wanderlust than by financial necessity.
0: Obviously, you know, I guess to do this, you need to have a location independent work. But but how do you find that like in terms of working in a confined space and, and in terms of... Um... Like you know, always trying to get Wi-Fi and stuff. Is it is it hard to 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 work like but like productively on this doing this?
1: Yes and no. Um, it would be disingenuous for me to say that it's you know it's it's either easy or terribly difficult. We do pretty well. We're my wife and I are both in technology. She actually works for the same company she was working for before we left, so they allowed her to go remote. And I'm I'm self-employed, so. Um, you know working in a, a thirty four foot long r v it's still a very small space you know so we you know we've got you know three hundred or less square feet of space to work inside of um, most of the time we do fairly well with that uh, we have the type of relationship that that works well. we spend a lot of time together and we always have but sometimes you need your space anyway so you know one of us might sit out on the patio in a camp chair and enjoy a mountain view while the other sits inside. Um, every once in a while, I'll go and you know work from a coffee shop or a co-working space. Um, sometimes if we don't have great connectivity in the places we end up, we'll have to go and work from you know libraries or laundromats. But for the most part, we kind of choose the places we go based not only on the beauty of the places, but also on the availability of Internet because that's really what enables us to do what we do. So, again, you know, given that we've got boosters and big antennas, we get Internet in places that most people probably couldn't. Um, But there are some places, you know, like unfortunately, a lot of the national parks, um, there's just not cell towers anywhere close enough to get us great signals. So in many cases, if we're trying to go like we spent this entire past summer up in Montana at Glacier National Park, we drove up the 395 through Eastern California and Oregon, Washington, and then spent, you know, about two months up in Montana at Glacier National Park. And it's uh, it's fairly remote. There's not a lot of cell connectivity around glaciers, so we had to kind of stay on the outskirts. We spent some time in the national forest out there, and um, on one side of the park you've got better connectivity than the other, and it it definitely kind of constrains and confines what we're able to do. But we make it work, and we we adjust our habits to accommodate. We don't download or stream as much TV when we're on poor internet. We kind of reserve our bandwidth for uh, for the work we're doing, but.
0: It's interesting. Overall, I think, like for,
1: a little bit of planning, it works.
0: It seems in- really fascinating to me. I mean, like, I think for like for me, honestly, I think it would just be hell on earth. I, <laughs> being totally honest, I would listen to this going, oh, you you have this thirty square meter place, and you're both working in there, and it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I I love to travel as well. You know, I, I think I'd enjoy what you do, like f- for a few weeks, you know, for, as a holiday. Sure. But in terms of work, I think you'd have to have a certain. You'd be a certain type of person to enjoy that. I think you know. I think most people agree. would would go a bit stir crazy. I think in that. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. You know. I think it, it's cool. I mean, I, I love. We used to have a caravan when I was a kid, and I used to enjoy you know going away in there. And I love the, the wilderness and, and the countryside. That's 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 one thing I would really enjoy. I just think I would find it really tough from a work point of view. And I mean, which I've got a, a young child, which which will make it even harder, I guess. But it's. um I like to travel, you know, like I love working in different countries, renting, staying in Airbnbs for extended periods, things like that. I think I'd find it obviously so hard though, but it's, it's fascinating just to see someone who loves it. Just to step in here quickly to mention our sponsor, Events Frame, a project I'm co-founder of, and I want to mention our integrations, which we believe are the best available. Firstly, payment integrations. You can connect any payment gateway such as Stripe, PayPal, on Braintree, or even bank account or take cash. You can connect everything to EventsFrame. We also have the best marketing integrations out there with every email marketing system, including MailChimp, Zapier, Infusionsoft, Aweber, Drip. And we've got deep integrations with all the social media platforms like Facebook, Google, and Twitter. We've got thousands of events live on EventsFrame right now, ranging from small community meetups to huge trade shows and conferences. Check it out over at defenseframe.com. That's E-V-E-N-T-S-F-R-A-M-E dot com. Now, back to the interview.
1: I think there's certainly personalities that uh, that would uh, do well and, and certain ones that would not, you know, and I think we've kind of found that we've done better than we expected. In fact, now... I'd actually like to be in a smaller vehicle just to afford us the ability to go more places. Uh, I don't think either of us anticipated we'd be doing it this long. Um, You know, I thought maybe three years, my wife, she didn't think we'd make it a year. Um, But we, again, we never really, we never spent any time in caravans as as kids or as adults. So this is, the whole experience for us has been um, uh, new experiences. Everywhere we go, everything we do has all been, you know, fascinating. And I don't know, it's just been, it's been fairly exciting and and incredibly fun. And And I can say without you know, hesitation that, um, the places we've seen and the things we've done in, in five years have been, uh, more awakening, inspiring and, and, you know, culturally, um, just more, we've grown a lot more through our travels, even in our own country. we have done a lot of travel before moving into the RV, um, mostly for business, a fair bit international, but this is a very different style of travel and it's, I don't know, we've learned a lot. So now I think, you know, 2020, We've talked about going and maybe doing the same thing around New Zealand, um, you know, maybe going and getting a van or a caravan and spending some time RVing around there for as long as we can get a visa for, and and then we may actually go do some some Airbnb travel around Southeast Asia. I don't know. We've got some other travel ideas, uh, but we're still not done here yet, and, and you know, we're, we're, we've got at least another year before we decide to make any big changes. So um, yeah, for the folks that think they would enjoy it, I would say go do it. It's amazing. Uh, for those that know they wouldn't, don't do it. Um, you know, you don't want to torture yourself. But uh, but yeah, for us, it's been pretty fantastic.
0: So so what is it you do for, for business that you can do remotely? How would how you explain what, what you do for work?
1: Um, so I guess the easiest way to describe what I do is I, I help um, technology and information security businesses with technical marketing automations so that they can focus on the technology and security that they do well. Um, my background is in information or cybersecurity. Um, I've spent over 20 years in the field and actually, um, around around the same time that I first joined Dynamite Circle, um, I launched a, an e-commerce site. I was inspired by uh, Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week, and so I set out to build my Muse. And I built an e-commerce site that catered to kind of the professional or the ethical hacker community. Um, it was a lot of fun, um, and I still have that business. It's still doing very well. Uh, but more importantly, the process of bootstrapping and building that business. Um, gave me a love for marketing. And I, I, I say marketing, I think a lot of people kind of have some disdain for the, the term or the concept marketing. Um, but I really loved all of the processes and all of the automations, all of the systems that I had to put in place to make that business successful without having investment, um, you know, without having a huge pile of capital to start it with. So uh, um, a few years ago, I started doing some of that work consultatively, helping friends and, and startups that I, you know, knew founders at um, and kind of, you know, getting things launched and, and kind of getting exposure and then last year, uh, beginning of 2018, I, I kind of first launched this iteration of my business, which is uh, kind of a, a combination of training and consulting. But that's, that's what I do, is I, I help other businesses that come from the segment that I worked in um, with marketing, growth, expansion, and uh, exposure.
0: I don't think people have that much of a disdain for the word marketing, but they do have a disdain for the, for saying sales, which is kind of crazy to me, especially in America. I've noticed people are like terrified to say they do sales. It's like, I'm a growth hacker. I'm a, I'm a this, I'm a, you know, they just like, and they won't say that. And sales is a dirty word, which is kind of weird because it's essential, you know. I've noticed that like becoming more of a thing. Maybe it's like a generational thing. I don't know. But I'm noticing it more and more that people don't ever want to say they're in sales.
1: Not, not that also, you're in sales, uh, you know, but
0: I just, I mean, everyone has to, everyone has to sell, you know. I mean, I, you know, sure. I'm selling all the time in my, in my business.
1: I think in in highly technical markets, it's especially true. And I think, you know, there's some legitimacy to the fact that, that, you know, or or to the notion, I guess, amongst technical people that, you know, not all salespeople are ethical in presentation. And so I think a lot of technical people are used to salespeople over-promising and over-delivering or possibly and sometimes just misconstruing. And so I think that has created kind of some of that disdain is there's this notion that, that sales and oftentimes by extension marketing, you know, some, somehow they mean being dishonest or, or being manipulative. And I think, you know, there's a there's a fine line between manipulation and influence, but I'm a big fan of influence. So yeah, I you yeah, know, definitely. I like being able to wield influence. And I think you know that's again that's kind of part of what i have to do and in, in my role is really help these companies recognize that hey doing good marketing getting better at sales doesn't mean manipulating and lying and spreading fear uncertainty and doubt um, it means doing a better job of telling your story and doing a better job of helping people understand how you solve their problems. So, you know, there's a little bit of a chasm to cross in helping people kind of get past that notion of, of what marketing is and how it how it integrates with their sales processes. But I agree with you. It's kind of it's odd how much people, uh, you know, look at sales and marketing as kind of, you know, the the evil component of building a business, whereas it's you know absolutely a critical foundation.
0: So, so what? Did it' uh, great to chat about your your events because I know you run some meetups, and that's um, people are often listening to this who want to get into running meetups. So, how did how did that come about? What was the origin story of, of the meetups you run?
1: So, as you can tell, I'm I'm pretty bad at keeping things short, but I'll, I'll try to keep this short. So, again, my background being in information security, um, back in 2003, um, I started an information security meetup group in Atlanta. This was an offshoot of defcon which is the world's largest hacking conference um and so i started the the atlanta defcon group uh, now, known just, as, i'm
0: going to jump in as, as you're talking about this but please. how did how did you um because like and i know that's a good way to people that want to start meetups is to find an established organization that allows you to organize like a local chapter like and i guess with defcon it's pretty informal you just say i'm organizing this and they let you do it kind of i, I guess there's not too much structure behind it
1: um, actually, yes and no. In the case of DEF CON, it was that year, I think 2002 or 2003, uh, Jeff Moss, aka Dark Tangent, um, he actually did a big announcement at closing ceremonies for the, the conference. At that time, the conference had about, I, I want to say 10,000 attendees. Yeah, um, And he, he basically... And said, "Hey, you know, a lot of you folks would like to be able to get together and create community between our annual conferences. So we'd like to encourage the establishment of these groups. And they kind of did formalize it. You actually kind of had to register and and express intent. And then, you know, if you if you kind of built something that that matched the 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 desires of the organization at large, then they added you to this big group site on on the DevCon website. So that way people could find you." Um, I was one of the very first chapters, or Atlanta was one of the very first chapters. We were just a handful of folks, and in fact, in two thousand and four, um I was on a panel giving a presentation about you know what that looked like throughout the first year of doing it. Um, but it, it proved to be a, a real fantastic success. you know, for us in the information security and, and hacking community, um you get a lot of people who you know they're they haven't socialized a lot. they're nerds, they're they're geeks, they're they're hackers. Um, and so you know, being able, you know, getting up and giving presentations and, and teaching other people things while these, while my community has incredible skill, a lot of folks don't have that same level of skill in, in presentation and social interaction. So it was really cool because at our meetings, well, for the first year, I probably gave 75 or 80% of the presentations to try to spur other people to do the same. And I would kind of drag people kicking and screaming up in front of our group, Um, To present, but over time we really got a lot of people who would come and give presentations at DC 404, um, many who ultimately became world renowned speakers after having done so. You know, they'd come give a talk to our our little local chapter, and then they'd submit that talk to some of the big security conferences. And then, you know, uh, a year later, they're giving that same talk in a much more professional setting at Black Hat, which is a, you know, $3,000 conference. It was really cool. It was it was a lot of community. Uh, you know, it was a, a very informal setting, but, uh, but I dragged a projector and a screen with me, um, you know, uh, power and internet. Every time I went and set up a meeting, I tried to really create the the technology to enable people to come and get together and present and share and teach and learn. Uh, And it it really kind of took off and everybody ran with it.
0: How did you get attendees? What was your, did you have, did you just get a list from, from uh, the conference or did you do promotion yourself?
1: Um, I did it pretty much just organically. Um, you know, being in the industry for a long time, I have a, a lot of friends in Atlanta who were part of the community. So they were, the first, very first meeting. I think there were five or six of us at a coffee shop, Cater Georgia, um, and you know, I, I kind of encouraged everybody that was there to help me build that community. So we were, we would go out and, and kind of proselytize a little bit, try to get people to come and join and participate. And you know, the first couple of meetings, I actually did recruit a couple of friends to also give some interesting presentations. So some of the some of the draw with some of the cool presentations that we were giving. Um, and then, you know, it, it grew fairly organically from there. You know, we put together a website, we put together a mailing list, um, we listed on DEFCON site. You know, I'd say maybe 20% of our attendees found us through the, the DEFCON website, you know, which is the, the primary organization. Um, but a lot of it was really outreach. So, you know, I, I tried to recruit as many people to come and participate and hang out as possible. And everybody that came to the meeting, I would tell them, please bring more people. You know, it, they don't have to be people who are interested in security or pardon me. They don't have to be people who work in security. Um, they just have to be people who are interested in security. So we had a lot of people who were very new to the field, who had no professional experience, who, you know, the idea of working in cybersecurity was you know kind of fantastical. Um, but again, we we've also we had many folks kind of uh, stem their career from attending. We had uh, you know, we were a very open and welcoming environment to anybody of any age. Um, so within the second or third year uh, of doing monthly meetings, we had uh, a couple of folks come. Uh, we had a, a kid who came, he started coming when he was fourteen. Uh, his parents would come and drop him off at the meetings. and initially, You know, you don't know if we're a sketchy group or not, right? We're a bunch of hackers. So initially his parents, his dad would come and hang out in the back of the room while uh, his kid would attend, but then he quickly realized that, I don't know, we had some some very strong goals towards, um, you know, sharing information, sharing knowledge and growing and learning from one another. So Nathan continued to attend on his own and he attended basically all the way from the time he was 14 until he left to go on a scholarship to MIT he has subsequently been part of a number of successful startups and he's presented at at least a half a dozen major security conferences. so um, he's just one of you know again many many um, interesting stories about the people who came through DC 404 and then later kind of became rock stars in the community.
0: What, what tips would you give to people like who are kind of scared to present like into, to do their first presentations? How would you suggest they approach it?
1: Um, I I think for me, and, you know, admittedly, I was teaching information security classes at the time, but I would say my style of teaching is also um, fairly different from almost anybody whose classes I've sat in. Um, I'm pretty jovial. I'm pretty informal. And I think, you know, when you're launching a a new meetup, when you're launching a a new group, um, avoiding death by power. PowerPoint is a a much better way to to really kind of encourage participation and and get people to to play along. So I, you know, the first several presentations I gave uh, were very conversational. I got up in front of the room and I said, hey, here's a topic I'd like to talk about. Um, You know, I, I know and expect there's probably people in the room who know more about this than me. But I'd like to tell you, you know, some of my thoughts and opinions on it and let's kind of chat through it. Um. So we had a lot of talks like that. You know, again, I, I did take a projector and a screen and ultimately, you know, we'd have people giving presentations. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that worked very well was us not having any set format, any set uh, requirements for what somebody could talk about or how they talked about it. You know, somebody could come and say, hey, I'd like to lead a discussion about X. And that was absolutely fair game. You know, if you've got something that's, Interesting to talk about or that you're passionate about uh, and you're building a group around those that topic or around that passion Inevitably there will be other people there who share the same passion because that's probably what drew them there um, And I think you know not getting hung up on what presenting looks like or what you know giving a presentation means and just just talking just opening discussion and and really just leading that process I think the 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 biggest thing is that somebody does have to take the initiative to, to kind of pull everybody into the fold, right? You know, we, you get a, a group of 10 people in the room and, you know, as the organizer, I, I kind of have nine people staring at me, expecting me to do something. So oftentimes I did have to say, okay, Hey, you know, let's, let's start a conversation as, you know, at sometimes we'd, we'd show up with no topic. Um, and we would basically show up, everybody would ha- hang out drink beers and then you know 20 minutes in somebody would end up mentioning something that would become the topic of conversation for the next two hours
0: cool hey, so hey, i so think you know, know my... we're actually right yeah. out of time there so i want to uh sure say thanks a lot that was a lot of really interesting stuff it's kind of a good good chat about your rv life and, and and starting the meetups so huge thanks for coming on the podcast and and all the best for the future
1: absolutely thanks again for having me it was a pleasure to be here
0: do you want to sell more tickets to your amazing events Eventsframe event ticketing has been built to minimize the amount of time it takes to buy a ticket. Result? You
1: sell more tickets. Check out eventsframe.com.